This UCSD TV program is presented by University of California Television. Like what you learn? Visit our website or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest programs. We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained, long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves, aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. So thanks so much for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. And today I'm going to be talking about the legacy of archaic admixture in present-day humans. And so to set the stage here, um, based on genetic analyses of present-day populations, we've built up a fairly good broad outline of the history of modern humans. So for example, we know that modern humans evolved in Africa. And about 100,000 years ago, there was a dispersal outside of Africa to the rest of the world. We also know, based on archaeological evidence, that during this dispersal, modern humans overlapped with another archaic human population, the Neanderthals. And so this begs the question whether these two populations that overlapped potentially met and interbred. And so several studies have tried to answer this, this hypothesis. But in the last five years, there have been some major breakthroughs that allow us to get whole modern, whole genomes from ancient human populations. In particular, we have genomes from the Neanderthals and their sister group, the Denisovans. And we'll hear a little bit more about the technical challenges that enable the breakthrough in the later talks. But what I'd like to focus on today is the fact that once we have these ancient whole genome sequences, we can pretty much definitively answer the question of whether there was interbreeding between these two groups. And so a number of studies have shown that there was indeed interbreeding or gene flow. For example, we now know that non-African populations trace about 2% of their genetic ancestry back to the Neanderthals. We also know that there was Denisovan gene flow into some present-day human populations. For example, populations from island Oceania have about 3 to 6% of their genetic ancestry tracing back to the Denisovans. This is over and above the 2% that they inherit 
from the Neanderthals. So the, the big picture is all non-Africans today carry a small amount of archaic ancestry. And at first blush, this might seem like a small contribution. But when we examine this further, one thing that we need to keep in mind is the Denisovans and the Neanderthals were highly diverged from modern human populations at the time of admixture. So we think that they were separated by at least a couple of hundreds of thousands of years. And as a result, these populations accumulated novel mutations that were never seen in the modern human population. And these novel mutations entered modern humans through the admixture process. So we estimate that about 10% of the SNPs at the time of admixture in non-Africans could have been of Neanderthal origin. So a hypothesis is that these archaic admixtures were having a potentially large impact on human biology. So as one concrete example of the potential impact of archaic admixture, uh, we were involved in a genome-wide association study, a study that aims to determine genetic variants associated with type 2 diabetes in Mexican-Americans. So in this study, we determined a novel variant found in this gene called SLC16A11, and we found that this gene had a unique geographic distribution. So when we looked at the variant in this gene that confers increased risk for type 2 diabetes, we found that the risk-increasing variant is found at appreciable frequencies in the Americas, is essentially absent in Africa, and is present at low frequency everywhere else. And what we found is that this risk-increasing variant at this gene matches the genomic sequence found in one of the Neanderthal genomes that had been sequenced. So what we determined was this was a variant that had introgressed into modern human populations from Neanderthals. Now, a number of other studies have looked at specific genetic positions, genetic loci, and have documented substantial contributions of archaic ancestries at these loci. So here is a not very representative list. But what we wanted to do is go beyond single loci analyses and ask what does the distribution of Neanderthal ancestry look if you were to look across the genome. So we wanted to go from single loci to a genome-wide assessment. And to do this, we need to build a map of archaic local ancestry. So what do we mean by that? Basically, what we want to do is to go along an individual person's genome and label the positions where they carry archaic ancestry. And so here is a cartoon that depicts what's going on and why we need to do this. So we have a modern human genome admixing with an archaic human genome. And if you look at the descendants of this interbreeding, because of the way the genome is transmitted in every generation, it gets broken down by a process called recombination. And as a result, if you look at the descendant of this interbreeding event, this descendant's genome is going to have this mosaic pattern where some portions of the genome trace their ancestry to the modern human and others trace their ancestry to the archaic human population. And so what we'd like to be able to do is look at a present-day individual's genome and figure out which are the portions that are red and which are the portions that are blue. So to be able to do this, we came up with a statistical model. And what this model allows us to do is to infer these locations of archaic ancestry. So specifically, we're going to look at a target genome. This could be any genome that we are interested in. And we compare this target genome to the genome of the Neanderthal, the Denisovan, as well as to a reference panel of African individuals. So we are looking at Africans because this is a population that we assume has little archaic ancestry. 
It's a reasonable assumption, but not entirely true, but we work with that. And our goal is to look at this target genome, and for every position, which we call a SNP here along this target genome, we'd like to label the ancestry, or more precisely, the local ancestry of this individual. So we'd like to be able to say that this SNP at the target individual is Neanderthalian ancestry, whereas this other SNP is modern human in ancestry. So I'm going to give you a little bit of intuition for what goes under the layers of the statistical model that allows us to make these inferences. So the basic idea is we are going to be looking at patterns of genetic variation that are informative of archaic ancestry. So here's an example where we're going to be looking at features of genetic variation that are informative of Neanderthal ancestry. So here we are looking at a single position in the genome where we are comparing the target genome to the Neanderthal, the Denisovan, and the Africans. And what we see here is a genealogy or a tree that relates these genomes at this position. And what we see at this position is that there is a mutation that clusters the target and the Neanderthal genome to the exclusion of all the other genomes. So when we see this pattern, we are likely to think that this is a position that has come into the target genome from Neanderthal admixture. On the other hand, here is another position where there is a mutation that clusters the target with the Denisovan and the Africans to the exclusion of the Neanderthals. And when we see this, we conclude the opposite, that this is a position that is unlikely to carry Neanderthal ancestry. So these kinds of features go into the statistical model, which figures out what is an optimal way of combining these features to get the best possible predictions. And similarly, we can also do a statistical model that allows us to predict Denisovan ancestries. So we applied an initial version of this statistical model to a data set that comes from what is called the Thousand Genomes Project. And this already gave us some very interesting insights. But a limitation of that data set was that this data set had a small sampling of populations from outside of Africa. And a second limitation was that it lacked any individuals who carried Denisovan ancestry, so we can make no inferences about the Denisovan contributions to modern human populations. So instead, we applied this data set, this method, to a new data set. Uh, this is a rich genomic data set that's called the Simons Genome Diversity Project. It has genome sequences from over 100 non-African populations. And most importantly, we have in, in this data set 20 genomes from Oceania, from individuals who have substantial Denisovan ancestries. So we applied our method to this data set. And the first thing we'd like to be able to conclude is that the method is giving us accurate inferences about archaic ancestries. So one way to do this is to make sure that the inferences are consistent with everything we know about human history. So the way we do this is we take the inferences that come out of the statistical model, we average it across an individual's genome, and compute what proportion of an individual's genome is archaic in ancestry. So in this particular case, we are asking what proportion of an individual's genome is Neanderthal in ancestry. And so what we have here is a circle for every population, and the color is telling us whether you have low levels of Neanderthal ancestry to high levels of Neanderthal ancestry. So the first thing we observed is, in general, non-Africans carry substantially more Neanderthal ancestry compared to South African hunter-gatherers, which are not included here. But this is what we expect based on our previous demographic models, which tell us that there was Neanderthal admixture into non-Africans after they split from Africans. We also observe that when you look at Eastern non-African populations, they carry more Neanderthal ancestry compared to West Eurasians, which has also been a previous observation consistent with the literature. 
Now we can do the analogous thing for Denisovan ancestry. And what we see here is that Oceanian populations have substantially more Denisovan ancestry compared to mainland Eurasian populations. Further, amongst the mainland Eurasians, there seems to be more Denisovan ancestry in East Asians compared to West Eurasians. Again, all of these are consistent with previous results. Now, when we looked at the data further, there was one element of surprise and a novel result. And the novel result is that several populations in South and East Asia tend to have an excess of Denisovan ancestry that had not been observed before. So these are populations like the Sherpa, which is a population from Nepal, the Tibetans, and Bengali, who are a population from East India. It turns out that this is a trace amount of Denisovan ancestry that they carry. We estimate that it's about five parts in a thousand, which is why you need these sensitive statistical methods to see these Denisovan contributions. Now, one question we were interested in is, can this excess of Denisovan ancestry in South Asian populations be explained by a mixture between Eastern non-Africans who have more Denisovan ancestry with West Eurasians who have less Denisovan ancestry? To, to see this, we plotted the Denisovan ancestry as a function of what proportion of your genome is related to non-West Eurasians. And what we see is generally, as you get closer to the non-West Eurasians, you have more Denisovan ancestry. But when you look at South Asian populations, they have systematically more that can be explained by this model. So what this is telling us is one of several things. A model that is consistent with this observation, though not the only model, is that there were actually three Denisovan integration events in the history of modern human populations. One in the history of the Papuans or the Oceanians, the second in the history of the East Asians, and the third in the history of South Asian populations. Now we decide to zoom in, and instead of looking at how archaic ancestry changes across individuals, we'd like to look at how archaic ancestry changes as we move along the genomes. So here, as we move along the circle, we are moving along the genome looking at different chromosomes. And the outermost circle is telling us what is the Denisovan ancestry proportion in the Oceanians. And each of the inner circles are telling us what is the Neanderthal ancestry proportion in different continental populations. And the key observation is the colors along these circles tell us which are positions in the genome where there is detectable proportions of archaic ancestry. So the key takeaway from this figure is the archaic ancestry doesn't seem to be randomly scattered along an individual's genome. There are certain hotspots where there is an elevated proportion of archaic ancestry, so we call them peaks. And then there are certain other positions in the genome where nobody seems to be carrying archaic ancestry, which we term deserts. So this was a, another surprise, and we'd like to figure out what is going on in these peaks and deserts of archaic ancestry. So we looked at one or the most extreme example of a peak. So this is a locus that overlaps a gene called basonuclein 2. And in the 1,000 genomes European population, we find that about 60% of individuals, European individuals today, carry the Neanderthal variant of the allele. This needs to be contrasted with the 2% who would have carried it 50,000 years ago. So essentially, the Neanderthal variant has increased from 2% to 60% over the last 50,000 years. This is not an isolated example, and we find of the order of 200 loci with elevated Neanderthal ancestries in the different non-African populations, and about 50 loci with elevated Denisovan ancestry in the Oceanian populations. So these are all potential candidates for what we call archaic adaptive introgression. Putting it simply, these are places in the genome 
where the archaic allele conferred an adaptive benefit in the modern human population, which is why it rose up in frequencies. So we'd like to understand what might be driving this increase in frequencies at these positions. And that turns out to be a really challenging problem. One way we try to address that is by looking at sets of genes that are known to be associated with certain functions or certain biological processes. And we asked, are these sets of genes harboring an excess of archaic ancestry much more than we'd expect? And so we find several sets of genes that show an elevated proportion of archaic ancestry much more than we'd expect. So for example, genes that are involved in keratin filament formation, so keratin is a protein that's found in hair and skin, are enriched for Neanderthal ancestry across all the non-African populations. Similarly, we find that genes involved in tracemine receptors, these are genes that are involved uh, or important for olfaction, uh, tend to have elevated proportions of Denisovan ancestry. So this again allows us to narrow down what the selection pressures might be, but still we are quite some ways away from figuring out what the exact sequence of processes were that drove these archaic variants to high frequencies. Next, we turn our attention to deserts. So these are large regions, tens of millions of bases long, where we cannot detect either Neanderthal or Denisovan ancestry. And even more impressively, there are four such regions in the genome that are deserts for both Neanderthal and Denisovan ancestry. So here is one example. This is a desert on chromosome 7, and it contains a number of genes within this region. But one gene that caught our eye because of the prior work associated with it is a gene called FOXP2. So this is a gene that's shown to be important for speech and language. So a possibility here is that these deserts of archaic ancestry are places in the genome that are resistant to archaic introgression. And a reason for that is that these are places that are important for the modern human phenotype. The challenge, again, is that these are large regions of the genome and trying to localize what might the changes be that make them resistant to introgression is, is actually uh, quite challenging. So we decided to look at this in a slightly more quantitative manner. And the way we did this is we chopped up the genome according to a measure of the selective strength in that region of the genome. And we asked, how does the archaic ancestry change in different portions of the genome? So the x-axis, as we go from right to left, is going in directions of stronger selective constraint. And what we find is the archaic ancestry, whether we are looking at Neanderthals or the Denisovans, decreases as we move towards the strongly selectively constrained regions of the genome. So this is consistent with the observation that there's been purifying selection to remove archaic alleles. And there are several models that have been proposed. One of these is that these archaic alleles are deleterious and they're being purged from the human population. Another one that we've also proposed is one of hybrid sterility, where these populations have diverged and have accumulated genetic incompatibilities that are not tolerated on each other's genetic background. So I'm just going to conclude very quickly. I've talked about statistical models for inferring maps of archaic ancestry. And so by combining these sensitive statistical models with the rich ancient and modern genomic data sets, we can make some very fine-scale inferences. And the kinds of inferences lead us to conclude that there is a lot of complexity in the demographic histories of these populations. We'll learn more about it in later talks. And when we look at the variation along the genome, clearly this is affected by selection, but of, there's also demography at play here. And a major challenge for us is to separate out demography and selection and different kinds of selection from each other. 
With that, I'd like to acknowledge my colleagues at Harvard, uh, colleagues at the Max Planck, and members of the Neanderthal Genome Consortium for comments and criticism uh, at different stages of work. Thanks.